This podcast is brought to you by FormKeep. Form endpoints for designers and developers. No iframes, JavaScript embeds, or CSS overrides. Try out our sandbox mode before you buy at formkeep.com. Hello. Hey. What's up? Two o'clock whiskey. As you do. I have to drink all of my alcohol before I move. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's right. You can't take it across the border probably, right? I can. I just have to pay like a ton of taxes. So I'd rather just have two o'clock whiskey. You'd rather have your liver pay the taxes. Exactly. Makes sense. Just for a week, followed by three conferences. <laughs> the liver is actually a pretty resilient organ. It can heal itself pretty well. I think, yeah. you'll, I think you'll be all right. It's pretty good at living, I hear. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's always two o'clock somewhere. <laughs> Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. How's it going? Pretty good. How about you? Uh, really well. Very well, actually. Are there any language features you'd like to rant about? <laughs> Why, yes. It's as if you knew. <laughs> um, so now that I'm interacting with a language on a day-to-day basis, so there's a couple things, really. Now that I'm interacting with a language on a day-to-day basis has pattern matching, and that's Elixir, I find that it's really easy for people to overuse, mm-hmm. um, which isn't really a feature that I thought would be subject to that. Like, oh, pattern matching, this is great, cool. But I'm seeing lots of cases where the pattern match on a function is defined by, like, developer-controlled constants. Mm-hmm. So, like, you pattern match, you know, you, you have a function that, I don't know, takes a list of things, and then depending on some other, like, in Elixir's case, some other atom that you pass the function, it will behave one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of thing where I see it. I see it often enough in the Elixir code I'm working with that it drives me nuts. It's like this would be so much clearer if you just n- named the functions two different things, right? Right. Um, and maybe you didn't even save any code because the you've got to write the function body twice anyway because right. Elixir's pattern matching. Well, there's lots of but you can do pattern matching all over the place in Elixir. But I was thinking specifically on the on the function pattern matching. But uh, that one was driving me a little nuts. So that was just a, a small, quick one. Just be careful with your pattern. Like any language feature, really. Like, But it's just that pattern matching wasn't one that I thought would be abused like that. You know, one of the things that I've noticed, depending on how pattern matching is implemented in language, the way, the way it's implemented in almost every language, I've noticed it tends to push people towards primitive ex- obsession to a certain extent. Explain more. Well, because <laughs> you can't do more complex stuff in the pattern itself, and people tend to not want to write guard clauses. So they tend mm-hmm. to structure everything in such a way that like everything uh, ends up being really easily destructured into something that you can match specifically against, which tends to only be primitives or things composed of primitives. Interesting. Yeah, like in Elixir, you can you can pattern match on a specific struct with a specific value in the struct. Right. So that helps. Right. No, and so you can do stuff like that, right? But um, for example, this may or may not apply to, to Elixir, but like atoms uh, versus strings. Mm-hmm. Or like in Rust, for example, right? If it's a borrowed string, you can pattern match against it. If it's an own string, you can't. Why? Um, why? Why the differentiation there? Because the data structure. I mean, you could technically pattern match against. Well, because basically, a, a string is a data structure that doesn't have public fields. Okay. Like a, a, a borrowed string is an actual value, whereas an own string is like data that goes on the heap somewhere. Okay. All right. I've noticed the same thing um, sort of in Haskell to a certain extent, um, although there are much, much fewer ways that you can structure things other than records made of primitives or other records. 
but a lot of a lot of times I've noticed that uh, I would want I would want to pattern match against some constant or something that like is named and placed somewhere else, but because of the way pattern matching works, if I put a name there, that's just assigning it. You know, that's assigning it to that variable mm-hmm. as opposed to matching against like the value of that variable. Right. And it makes me it makes me often think uh, about Scala, where because uh, in Scala functions are objects and the parentheses. Uh, in front of something are just syntactic sugar for calling the apply method. Mm-hmm. And so if you see parentheses on, around something on the left-hand side of expressions, then it calls the function unapply instead. And so it's really flexible in that way. And that's the only language I've ever seen that does that. And I've noticed that allows you to represent more things in that way and still have certain abstractions that you wouldn't otherwise have and still maintain some level of, of encapsulation because pattern matching does kind of throw that out the window yeah that's true the the thing you mentioned about the guard clauses is certain i'm finding that to be true like if i'm thinking like um oh, i could use pattern matching here and i'm like oh well actually to really do that right i'd need a guard clause and at that point i'm like well why don't i just write the conditional inside the inside the function <laughs> or like but that's the thing people <laughs> don't do that right because that that i think is the correct answer in those cases but uh what i notice a lot of people do is they're like oh well let me just completely restructure everything differently so i don't have to have the guard clause at all right the other thing I see pattern matching used a lot for, and it's actually really good for, is recursion. Um, yeah. Where you may have a list of something or a or one of something or whatever the case may be. But I would also say that excitement over using pattern matching can lead to developing recursive solutions that don't need to be recursive. Like, for instance, on the, on the project I'm on right now, there were these query builder objects, these query build, not objects, query builder functions, mm-hmm. modules that would basically take in a, a collection of parameters, sanitize them in some manner, and then recursively build up a query using the parameters. So it would call the various function bodies, which was like build query, right? And build query itself would pattern match against certain things that may or may not be in the parameters. So if you hit one of those queries, it would like add to this, it would build up this query over the over time, it would add to the query, and then it would call you know, build query again with the remaining parameters. It would pluck that out of the parameters and call build query again. The problem with that was as you got to like a sufficiently complicated query builder, you would have a lot of these build query functions. And mm-hmm. you had to look at you had to inspect the body to see like what's this one building again? Oh, this is the one where we're querying on account ID. Oh, this is the one where we're joining to posts and getting some other data. So what we ended up doing after struggling with these for a little bit was just writing them as function composition. Right? So you'd have like a po- an account query builder or something like that. And it would have one function that said like filter on attributes and you would provide it and filter on attributes is actually its own query builder where you provide it the parameters and it just does equality checks for like if a, a simple like any model that might have parameters you pass it a whitelisted list of things that you want to be filterable upon and it goes ahead and does what you need to do and then you pass it through to like filter canceled and you can say like is this account canceled or not true or false mm-hmm. um, and just chaining functions in that manner using the elixir pipe operator was a lot more readable and to top it all off, this, this the pattern building query builder, you invoked that by calling a macro. <laughs> so it was like a, it was a it was a collection of patterns that, as like a Ruby developer, those are all exciting things. Like okay, recursion is cool because now we have this pattern building things to make recursion more pleasant to do, and pattern matching is cool because well, pattern matching is cool. And look, we have actual macros, and it was like all of these combined into one. And when you looked at it, it was like actually it's not a great use case for recursion, and it's not a great it's really hard to follow for the pattern matching. And well, 
this would be a lot easier to follow if it wasn't a macro and we just use function composition for everything. Well, and then it sounds like the end result is that you're using the pipe operator to come up with an API that is roughly equivalent to what you would have had with active record name scopes anyway. Um, yeah. Where you're chaining. Yes. If you were to pass, like, if you were from the composer's perspective, just to pass an entire collection of parameters into those name scopes and let right. the and let the name scope figure out what to do with them, rather than being like, oh, I know I need to pass, you know, the the account ID I'm looking for into the scope. It just says right. like, here's the parameters. They told me they want it, and it's useful for APIs where you have like an index view that you want to you want to build up, um, you want to query against, rather than just getting all of the accounts back or whatever the case may be. Right. So yeah, that was those are three language features I think that to, I was just kind of like okay, and and every in our Elixir chat room at Thoughtbot, people be like, oh, macros are really cool, and my experience with them early on has been like. Just don't, don't, don't macros. Just don't use function composition until there's like a super easy way to see that a macro is a win. Like you have some macros that are doing a lot of work for you, right? So like, yeah. How do you? You're laughing. How do you feel about those macros? No, um, I'm laughing. Well, so have you tuned into my my stream lately? I have not. Um, so one of the things I've been working on is we have um, a bunch, a couple of procedural macros. Um, which are basically a compile time function that takes in an AST and then returns an AST. And you can use it to inspect, you know, various things. Um, but none of that works on stable without this library called syntax, which um, basically has copy-pasted the Rust compiler, made some changes so that it, the Rust compiler compiles on stable Rust, and then exposes that as a third-party library where you feed it some files and it spits it, and then it pretty prints the code back out for the actual Rust compiler. Um, <laughs> Uh, and all of this because procedural macros aren't available on stable yet because uh, they're, they're, they're an unstable feature. So um, one of the things I've been wanting to do, like I, all of that is fine, but uh, there are some people who are just uncomfortable with syntax extensions in general right now. So I wanted to provide a standard, non, uh, 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 just a normal macro alternative for as many of these as I can. Mm -hmm. um, there are some that I will never be able to provide an alternative for, for example, in first schema because that requires establishing a database connection at compile time. Can't do that from a normal macro. And so I've been working on that on, on stream. I felt really bad because a couple of people that I know who have tuned in because they were, like, from hearing us talk about Rust on the podcast, interested in learning more about Rust, and I'm working on the most arcane uh, macros <laughs> possible. Um, because I'm, I'm essentially writing a, Rust, a simplified Rust parser in Rust's macro language. Because I, I basically have, since I don't have access to the AST, I only have access to tokens in a, in a regular macro. I'm basically pattern matching against the tokens that would make up a struct and then incrementally parsing them in a recursive fashion. <laughs> so you're doing all the things I hate. Cool. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I to be clear, I love pattern matching and I like recursion when it's appropriate. And um, I think there's some really good solutions there. And even macros, like a library like Diesel providing me infer schema or you know whatever you can as a basic macro rather than this crazy macro. Uh, yeah. They're mostly like custom derived type stuff. Right. So doing that type of thing, it's not something I'm ever really going to have to dive into. But this right. query builder where it's like, oh, I want to be able to add querying on this other field, this other type of field that's going to require joining this other model, this other schema. How do I? Where is this query even kicked off? Like I'm, I was, I had to go into those files often and and remembering that like, oh, I need to look for a use line in the controller that tells me they're building this query builder here and right. then that no, i know i need to know to go look at the macro no and, that, and that's the thing right and that's why i was saying i, I feel really bad because i i feel the need to continuously when people come into the, and watch the stream 
that are newer to Rust to like remind people this is not normal things that normal people would ever do, uh, and this is not a thing that a user of Rust has to do or a user of Diesel has to worry about. This is stuff that like when you're writing absurdly generic code for a really high level library, right? The sort of stuff that you do, right? And my my frustrations are more along the lines of like when I first learned Ruby and figured out metaprogramming. Like everything I did, I metaprogrammed. <laughs> right. <laughs> like I was defining method and sending everything, and then you're like, "Oh, that actually that that was a little too much." And it's it's a matter of like calibrating what's the right amount. And I think that on on the project I'm on, people were excited to try these out, and I was too. But then it was like, actually, if we just make this function composition, it's better. Like, and even those query builders, it's function composition now, but each one of those functions does a tiny little bit of pattern matching. Um, but it's a lot more easy to parse. So I was pretty excited about that. I, mean, I think with any form of metaprogramming, right? Because because actual macros are still just a form of metaprogramming. Yep. Like this is true in any language. There just comes a time where we're all better off if we just write some actual code. <laughs> there, the, you know, you, you, you could you can meta the, the, it's and it can be uh, frustrating at times because you can look at this and like I could metaprogram all of this away. Mm-hmm. But that's you know how you end up with uh, with write only code basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I remember on that T1D project we had like we had a tiny bit of metaprogramming, not a lot, and that was a pretty pretty complicated project in spots. I think if we searched through it, we had maybe a two or three calls to send somewhere. Yeah, um, but we kept it. We we I remember specifically I was still of the like we could metaprogram this, and everybody else was like, no, let's not. <laughs> so that one is what probably that's a that's a project that probably reigned me in on the metaprogramming the most. It was like, oh, actually, this is a lot nicer and a lot easier to follow. Yeah. I mean, I remember introducing a couple of class macros on that one, and in hindsight, I probably shouldn't have. Oh, there was one for, like, something with associations. Yeah, it was something where we wanted to... Auto-build association or something like that. exactly. It was like build it. It was like when you access it, build it if it's not there. Yep. And then there's this one issue I ran into, and it, like... Let me explain this to you. So this site that I'm working on sells things, and those things have a price. And you have a shopping cart, and you can add things to your shopping cart, and then you check out. In the shopping cart, there is a place for you to enter a promo code, as you do, right? Mm-hmm. So the items have a price field, and the promo code has either a percentage discount field or a fixed discount field. And for the purposes of this, what we're what I'm explaining here, we only really care about fixed discounts. So what was happening was the promo code the the items the item price say is like ten thousand, and the promo code says fixed discount of five hundred. Or maybe it says a fixed discount of five, let's say, in this example. Okay. The problem was fixed discount was basically persisted and specified as if it were talking about dollars. And item price were specified and persisted as if it were talking about cents. Because uh, when you're storing money, oftentimes it makes sense to store like the smallest unit of currency. Yep. So you store, you store it in cents. So this became a problem, as you might imagine, <laughs> uh, because you try to do some math, and one of the numbers is in dollars, and one of the numbers is in cents, and it's not immediately apparent from anything that those two units are different. Right. So after banging our head against this bug, we were like, what is this bug coming from? Because it wasn't clear to us that one was cents and one was dollars either until we started looking at the data, and it was like, these numbers are drastically, <laughs> why is one tenth, why is one, you know, a thousand and the other is five? Like this, these things should be like a hundred dollars and five dollars off. What's going on? Right. Um, and then we did some math. So after banging our head against that for like an hour to figure out what was going on, Ian and I looked at each other, and Ian was like, "Oh, types would have saved us here, right?" 
And I originally was like, yeah, types definitely would because we'd have a dollar type and we'd have a sense type and we know we weren't we couldn't do math between those two things. Like you can't multiply a dollar times a sense or whatever or subtract dollars from sense or well, you could, but whatever. <laughs> it would know to do the conversion even if you could, right? Right. But in reality, like I thought about it for half a second and I was like, in reality, anybody that made the mistake in the first place of not really realizing that like one was cents and one was dollars is likely to probably use integer as the type for both of those things because they are both integers. Yes. Um, and that is the database type of those things. They are integers. At the same time, I think that you make the mistake once and once you become aware of the mistake once, you become the kind of person who then never uses integer as the type for anything. Yeah, that's, pro that's possible. My solution to the problem, which I think also gets, the, gets it done just as equally as types get it done, although you don't get compiler help from this, is to go through the code base, find fields that are sense, and rename them price in sense. Yep, and discount in dollars, right? And we actually converted the discount to be cents because we wanted all the units. But like, just basically being extremely explicit so that then you would see like price in cents minus discount in dollars. And you're like, uh, hmm, probably not right, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> so yeah, I, another, that was kind of like the language feature type thing. Like everybody, everybody at ThoughtBot is super excited about strong types and the types are still only as good as the programmers that are using them. Yes. And like, I'd like to think that like you said, if you make that mistake once, you're like, I'm not going to use integer ever again. I'm going to like make a more specific type for the thing I'm representing. But I don't know if that's true. Like that, I feel like that's true for some people. But like, how many programs have you seen that suffer from massive issues with like this function may return nil or it may return a value? Right. Right. Everybody gets burned by that on a daily basis, but it doesn't seem to be going away in our Ruby code anyway. It seems to be going away when people move to languages that don't have nil. Well, that, uh, I mean, but that's the difference, right, is that you have, is that you have a type for that. I mean, I, I think you are correct that types are, are only as good as the programmer using them, but um, I think that the problem that you're describing isn't even isn't even indicative of that. It's it's that types are only good if you use them. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you would use a type. It's called integer. Just like in Ruby, you're using a type. It's called object. Sure. Uh, <laughs> but integer is not really a type. Like primitives aren't really types yeah. that are useful. That's true. Sometimes they are. They're very it's like if you're if you're writing a calculator, then those, <laughs> then they're useful. Yeah, and and that got in. We did get into a, a discussion about again tying back to primitive obsession. Like after we had that discussion, it was like yeah. In my favor, I was talking about like how many how many programs have you seen that are stringly typed, which is like right. a piece of programming jargon where everything is just a string. Everything's represented by a string somehow. And we talked about this earlier as like that makes it easier to do pattern matching on primitives, things like that. Well, so. and actually, so your example, if you if you if you modify it a little bit, is kind of a perfect is a perfect case of pattern matching and primitive obsession sort of butting heads, um, which is like so ignoring the dollars and cents. What if you need to what if you need to deal with multiple forms of currency? Right. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to introduce a money object, right? So you'd have a amount and a currency field. Mm -hmm. Pattern matching goes completely out the window there. Like that is no longer a useful object to match against. Why? Um, because to implement a quality comparison, well, so basically, uh, you, you need to you need to know the currency that it's in. I mean, certainly you could match like if it's U.S. dollars, do this. If it's if it's mm -hmm. Canadian dollars, do this. If it's yen, do this. Right, right. If you wanted to, if you wanted to write functions for every bit of currency you support. Right. But like more typically, when you're when you're dealing with a quality comparison between a money object, if the other uh, object is of a different currency than self, you convert it, and then you compare the amount based on the conversion rates that you right. know from somewhere. Right. And pa like pattern matching is is fundamentally against any form of a quality comparison that isn't 
strict uh, strict comparison between primitives. Isn't like a value type, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I would still call that a value type. You just define equals equals to do something other than. Uh, but they're not the. They're no longer the same value type. Sure. Because you've got like, so you would you call it? Yeah, I guess money. Your money object would be a value type. You wouldn't have like a U.S. dollars value type. Right. But they are the. They are. They are just. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, at the same time, I guess you could argue that at the very least, you're forced to always handle the fact that it's uh, it could be multiple uh, currencies because you would either have to explicitly match against the currency field or explicitly ignore it. Right. The currency thing, like I've, I'm on, I've been on several projects at this point that have had checkouts involved and money involved, and everybody always starts assuming like we're only going to deal with U.S. dollars and we're going to store dollars. And then for right. whatever reason, it's like, oh, actually, it's easier if we store an integer, so let's store cents. And then, like, I'm always trying to make the point of, like, from day one, as soon as you figure out, like, we are taking money, start thinking as if you are going to be taking any number of currencies. Because it's significantly harder to go back and add that in later. It's one of, it's one of those things. It's just harder to refactor out once it's everywhere. So there's a third answer here. And actually, I wanted to bring this up when you were describing the problem originally. Okay. Use Stripe. <laughs> you're still going to have some record of you know the order that you took on your system or things like that for the like right, sure stripe handles that conversion for you you do have to eventually know to tell like it, you have to then deal with on the client side telling stripe that it's a, a currency other than dollars but stripe handles that it also handles uh fixed discounts and percentage discounts on coupons oh. and they are already using stripe for their checkout then why would you what guys are use we Stripe's doing? Coupons? Why do we build our own promo code system? <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good question because there are a lot of problems with this promo code system that Ian and I found yesterday. So, hmm, I have to look into just doing Stripe. So, you, are you saying like I could, I could tell Stripe as they're checking out this product costs a hundred US dollars, and Stripe would then know how to handle it from there on out and give me give me back something on the order or whatever it sends me on the charge or whatever it sends me back that lets me say like you charge them i don't know what is it like 79 euros or something i don't know i just made that up but um i think stripe will still give you your invoice back in us dollars and will handle and will handle the conversion for on on behalf of the customer right so the customer may will have been charged in their local currency but right. they will plus have... whatever the surcharge is for converting uh, okay right and so Stripe would handle that, and then Stripe would handle, like, if I had a coupon code for $5 off, it would take it down to $95 and then do the conversion from the, at that point. Yep. Interesting. It would handle I, mean, I, I, I don't discounts. know the exact rules for, like, <laughs> where that <laughs> no. specific interaction uh, occurs, other than that, yes, it does handle all of those I'm going to hold you to this. If, if uh, I'm going to call up Stripe, and if they can't do it, I'll be like, I don't know, Sean Griffin told me they could. <laughs> It was, I mean, on, it was on a podcast. I, mean, I don't know if they can if they convert if they subtract the five dollars and then convert it to euros, or if they convert it to euros and then also convert the five dollars to euros and then subtract the resulting amount. All right, I will. I will. Because that would that would result in slightly different like mm -hmm. for by a few cents. That would result in different <laughs> amounts being charged when you take the the conversion rates into account. Yes. Uh, with the with the the, the conversion surcharge. Right. I guess I'll let you be unsure of that. <laughs> Sorry. Also. I don't know if you know, but there's this great there's this great platform that you can use if you want to sell products to other people and not it's have like to worry you want about to the shop. Yourself. You have a shop and you want to do you want to make it into you want to Shopify it. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I've on this project, I've also now used Ecto's like custom types a couple of times that we talked about mm -hmm. on the episode with Jose. 
And it has me super excited for Rails 5 and uh, the Attributes API public part, the public part of the Attributes API, right. uh, if that ever ships. So I'm super excited for that. Because it was really like... If Rails 5 ships, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't know if it'll ever come out. Uh, <laughs> we got... We were doing we're something... We're beta 4 today, by the way. Oh, good. Another beta. I've been asking for that. Although you have, you have to do it right as I'm preparing the workshop and like finalizing all my materials for the workshop. So that's oh, great. you're Oh, you're going to love this. Actually, the plan is we're going to release an RC during RailsCon. <laughs> we're we're, we're uh, going to camp out in a room uh, and have a little Rails 5 uh, war room. And we're all, we, we've almost got all of the blockers out of the way. And there's just a handful that we're just going to bust out during RailsCon. <sighs> <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. A week ago, uh, a week ago would have been great. I could have had, oh, man, today's like the last day for me to finalize. Well, Friday's really the last day for me to finalize material for before people will start downloading it. Anyway, yeah, so we were doing a custom type, again, for promo code type stuff. We wanted all the promo codes to be upcased at all times. And so I was like, oh, we'll use a custom type for this. It'll just be based on the string type. And when we go to write it to the database, we'll upcase it. And when we go to create something that we're going to query on, we will upcase that. So now, like, anytime you're doing a query, you don't have to worry about having having upcased it before you issue the query. You can just do it right from there. And that that last part particularly blew Ian's mind. He was just like, wait, what? It even works in the query? And I was like, yep. He was like, oh, Ecto's so great. And I'm like, yeah, Active Record's going to do the same thing, or it already does in a private API. It will do the same thing in a public API. And it yeah. made both of us pretty excited for that API to come out. So someday it'll ship and be public and be available. <laughs> That's all I got for my old man wines. <laughs> so, 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 some listeners will be very upset by the old man wines, I'm sure. Yeah, that's true. That's true. We did get some feedback that they don't like it when we sound like grumpy old people. But hey, hey. that's part of being a programmer. Sometimes you sound like a grumpy old person. Don't get me started on JavaScript. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I finally figured out associations for diesel. I saw that. I saw that. Or at least what is the, going to be the first pass at the API, and then I'm going to let it sit for a while and use it for a while and try and figure out if I feel the need for more than is there. What kind of associations do you support so far? Belongs to and has many? Yep, pretty much. Has one, I suppose, technically exists, but we don't really enforce the has oneness of it. Yeah, neither does Rails. <laughs> True. <laughs> um, it worked. It, uh, so basically... The way associations work is actually everything comes from the belonging to side. The the has when you annotate something with has many, that actually does nothing other than enable joins between those two tables uh, in the other in the other direction, um, which is actually a thing I might even remove because it's not a terribly useful thing for has many because we don't support uh, actual eager loading that way. I mean, I guess it's useful if you actually if you do want to. Even then, if you're actually going to be referencing columns from the other side of the association in your query. It's almost always when you're selecting children where some property about the parent is true. Not the other way around, at least not for as many. Mm, probably, yes. That seems to make sense to me in my, if I'm following it. <laughs> so I, I guess actually we basically only have belongs to. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, the, the, the way it works is um, when you annotate something with belongs to, uh, then you can do that thing, colon, colon, belonging to, and then you can either give it one parent or an array of parents, uh, and that will give you back a query object that will give you all the children for those uh, ungrouped to start. Um, if you're passing it what one parent, that's the entirety of a belongs to uh, association right there. And then you can load it, and it's all good. And then for eager loading one to many, so when you pass it multiple parents, we then give another another method called grouped by, which would take the array of parents again and would give you back an array of array of children, which you could then pass to zip. 
all of that felt a little bit much. Uh, like I, I like having all of those as separate steps so that because it gives you a lot of control if you want to modify the query in any way. Mm-hmm. But um, for the common case of I want I just want to eager load all of the children belonging to all of these parents and group them together and I don't care about anything else about the query. I added an additional method uh, that would go on the array of the parents called load associated where you would uh, it, so it would just be like so you have an array of users called users it would be the variable so you just do users.loadassociated post mm-hmm. and that would give you back the array of array of posts grouped up by the users. You would still call zip manually. I may eventually expose something that also zips them up, but I started to look at like what I would want to do if there's more than one of these things. And I'm just like, this really gets out of what should be the domain of an ORM. So maybe I'll build a separate little library that like mm-hmm. adds a couple of really common helper functions. Right. Um, but the idea is that all these methods give you back a thing that you would pass to zip because our associations are non-invasive. So the posts are always a separate thing from the users. And if you'd like to have them in the same structure, you use zip to get a tuple. Right. Yeah, that's a good idea. That's like the that's like the conversation them always being completely separate from the parent objects is like the conversation we were having with Jose about basically not wanting to arbitrarily add fields that are based on an association to your struct for user. Right. Seems like a good thing if you can avoid it and still have a nice API. Yeah, I'm I'm realizing as I'm saying it out loud, like the API sounds a little verbose when described, but if you when you look at the actual code compared to the equivalent in Active Record, it's it's not much. Right. Um, it's basically one additional line because you would call zip. Right. And like when you first showed it to me, the load associated thing I don't think was there. And I was like, sure, okay. Like I don't, I know less Rust than I probably did a few months ago because I just haven't mm-hmm. been doing it. And I looked at it and I was like, that looks like a lot of code. But the load associated thing and then just having to call zip, that seems fine. And the, and the load associated thing actually only reduces it by, uh, the number of lines by one. Right, but it just seems a little more like declarative to me anyway about yeah, what I'm. No, what I, I mean, I, and I agree. I think that that'll be the more common use case. Right. But I mean, what came out of I was just blocked for the longest time, and so I I kind of reduced the scope to what I felt like was absolutely we could not ship associations without this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I just sat down for like two hours, wrote out, okay, so uh, if I've got an app. And I want to load if I have user uh, and they have many articles and uh, also have many pages because we're, we're like a WordPress style blog where you also have pages which are separate than articles or something. What would the code look like for that? And so I, and so I just wrote it all out mm-hmm. and then refactored until each of the pieces was identical and then moved the identical pieces into diesel proper. <laughs> Sounds like a totally sane and boring sounding way to do something, but yep. actually is a great way to accomplish something like that. I mean, you, especially when you're building a general purpose library, you want to actually have built like the specific solution first and then be like, this works. Let me pull this up. And just the approach of taking like, what's the bare minimum I can ship here. And that's, I mean, we're constantly trying to do that on all of our projects and with mixed results. Often yeah, people try to get ahead of themselves and guess at what they want next, that kind of thing. Well, and that, and that was sort of the thing was, um, I had lost sight of what was really necessary to get started. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, I just had to look at what is the most painful thing to not have. So yeah. we don't have like has many through, yep. uh, which is a thing I would eventually like to like to be able to support. Mm-hmm. I still need, I, I like I really need to flesh out the more common case first of belongs to. And, and most of the usefulness of has many through actually just comes from reforming um, uh, how joins work more than anything else, like as, a, as opposed to the actual association itself. If you're, right. if you're actually just trying to load all of the children, all, all of the child records through another thing, like the code is not different than it is right now. Mm-hmm. Other than maybe again, I save you one line of code. Right. 
but more commonly it's there because you want you want to be joining in some interesting way or you're doing a many to many in which case you don't call it has many through usually but <laughs> i just thought of one so we you were talking before like about creating for parent objects based on the children mm -hmm. so how could you handle like i at least a couple times find myself at least a couple times in every app probably find myself wanting to say like show me all of the users that have no posts Oh, that's actually really easy to do. Um, so you would uh, left out or join onto posts, and then uh, where post ID is null. Oh yeah, I guess you don't actually care about getting the associated object. You just care again about querying based on the associated object. But you're actually, at that point, you know you write the left out or join yourself. Yep. Okay. And and we support like we would we support all of that really easily. That's not that's not a problem. Right. Is there like basically can you get a left out or join a canonical left out or join based on like the names of things that you're joining to? Or do I have to say like left outer join posts on post.userid equals users posts.userid no. so, equals so user.id? That's the thing, right? There's all these various uh, aspects of associations. But to me, the most useful thing is that you isolate how to get from one table to another somewhere else. Okay. So that's how that's how our join API works is like uh, we look for a trait called join to and that trait describes how two tables are joined together. But basically, all of that gets encapsulated from uh, when you do has many posts on uh, when, when you put that above users, that implements join to from the users table to the post table. Okay, so you never have you don't have to respecify how to join, basically. No, so you would say uh, users dot left out join posts. Uh, you'd, be, you'd explicitly pass it the posts table. Cool, because that's like in Rails, like Rails five is going to add the left joins, right, or left outer mm -hmm. joins, whatever the function, whatever the method name is, and. It wasn't. It's not like a huge fix because you could always specify the join syntax yourself. Except that then you were specifying the join syntax yourself, and you were like, "I already did this once. I already told Rails how to get from here to here." It should or just the know vaguely knowing that if you do uh, dot joins dot includes, we always do a left join. <laughs> right, but even that was like they always do a left join for now. Like exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, but now we have a left join in Rails. So actually, in in that particular case, the code would look almost identical to Rails. Okay. Perfect. I like that. I like that I don't have to respecify. That's good. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's the biggest thing, right? I mean, those are the features that are really necessary. The ability to sort of abstract away how to do joins and the ability to eager load multiple children for, for, for multiple parents. Like, to me, those are the two absolute must-have features of associations. Yep. I do probably at some point need to... I'm not even sure if I, if I'm, if I need to have this effect like creation at all because it's just not that hard to set the foreign key. I don't know. Again, I, this is one of the things like I've, 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 I've really pared it down to what I think is absolutely required. That's all implemented. I'm going to be releasing it soon. I'm going to go play with it. All right. Fantastic. And I did stream uh, the, the implementation of uh, the association feature. So yeah, how's the streaming the been notes. going? Tell, so Sean, for people who haven't been following him on Twitter, has been streaming open source work exclusively on Diesel at this point, right? Yeah. Um, a couple of people have asked me if I'm going to do Rails at all. Mm -hmm. And I haven't because, well, number one, like Rails is what I do nine to five. So streaming nine to five might be a little awkward because I, I, I will be randomly jumping in and out for meetings or pairing or answering questions and stuff right. like that. And so part of it's that after work, I don't want to work on the thing that I work on during the day. Uh, but then the other thing is most of what I do on Rails these days is issue triage. And when I actually am writing code, it's usually um, a bunch of put statements in something usually related to associations, trying to figure out exactly where some arcane bug is occurring. <laughs> and so I just don't think any of that is is terribly interesting, whereas Diesel right now has a lot of stuff that I just want to get done on it. And I think writing new code is probably more interesting for most people. Yeah. 
I'd agree with that. How's the so like the streaming? Like you have a lot of people tune into these things. Like I, I haven't, I haven't, I've watched like a few minutes of one on my phone or whatever when you happen to be streaming when I had some downtime. But uh, it varies. On the weekends, I average about forty now. Wow. Um, up until this most recent one, it had been going up every time. Mm-hmm. And I think the the reason that this most recent one was less was because it was the first one that was a weekday that wasn't like because I, I started doing it on a weekend and then I'm like, all right, I, I like this, and that, so I did it on the weekday. But the that one didn't have a dip from the first stream because the first stream was really small because it was the first time I'd done it. <laughs> and so it continuously grew. And then I was doing it on the weekends where I had uh, uh, more people able to watch. And so then I went back to doing it on a weekday. So that was why it went down. Uh, okay. But uh, on Sunday, it averaged around 40 or 50 people, I think. That's awesome. Cool. I'm going to have to try yeah. that like on a Friday after RailsConf when I'm done with this presentation <laughs> stuff, getting all the getting the workshop ready. But I think more people should do that just to... I mean, are they? is everybody chatty with you as you're... Um, sometimes this most recent stream, basically the chat was completely empty, uh, or, or quiet rather, which was, uh, unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they are though. Um, in what on su- Sunday, I think it was when I was working on some macro stuff, there was a guy who was much better at macros than I am in chat. And, uh, he gave me a lot of help, which was nice. <laughs> that's good. It's like a rubber duck who can also talk back to you. So that's exactly nice. occasionally um, if they feel like talking. <laughs> the, the cost for me is that, is that. My computer runs about five times slower while I have the video encoder running. So uh, mm. the actual feedback cycle is significantly longer. But uh, that will get better once I have dedicated hardware to do the video encoding. Cool. We'll post a link to that. Uh, do you going to have a schedule somewhere? I know I saw you tweeting about that. Oh, day. I need to put it on the on the description of the Twitch channel. I did announce a schedule, and then uh, the next day I realized that I announced a schedule a few days before I'm moving to a time zone that is two hours ahead of where I am. So <laughs> uh, it will probably change. Because okay. I announced the times in UTC. So it'll probably be that exact schedule, but two hours later. <laughs> okay. Um, All right. Anything else? No, uh, I think that's a good amount of content. <laughs> okay. Uh, show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 63. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any others, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>